What a great hymn to sing as we go into this passage in the book of Hebrews as we consider that the powerful incentive for perseverance is the greatness of our great high priest. Would you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4 as we look today at verses 14 through 16, uh, verses or chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, we'll say for next week as we look at Jesus, the qualified high priest. Today we're looking at Jesus, our great high priest, the throne of grace, a powerful incentive for perseverance. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this passage. Thank you, O great high priest, who is serving as our great high priest, interceding for us today. Thank you that you are exalted and transcendent. Thank you that you have the unequal capacity to show sympathy for your people. Thank you that you are always accessible. Teach us what this means. Impress it upon our hearts. Change the way we live and conform us to a life that is to be lived with such a great high priest, the throne of grace today in heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, we are incentivized in so many ways in our culture. We have cashback offers and loyalty uh, programs uh, galore. We have employment bonuses and we have marketing strategies. I love a bargain. And the other day I was shopping and I found a great bargain and incentive to purchase this product. $4 off. I bought it. I was incentivized. Well, the author of Hebrews today gives us an incentive to persevere. And that incentive is our great high priest in heaven. So the author of Hebrews wrote to Jewish believers, his congregation we might understand, who were being pressured to abandon their profession of faith, their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, abandon him and return to Judaism. And he wrote to encourage them to hold fast in Christ, hold fast to our confession, the author says, our profession of faith in Christ. And the, the reasons that he has given are listed thus far in the book of Hebrews as we have considered Jesus' superiority to the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus' superiority to angels, to Moses. And now we find that Jesus is even superior to the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood. In last week's text, the, the author exhorted the believers of his day and us, not to repeat that epic failure of the Exodus generation under Moses when they forfeited what was their right to enter 
God's rest, my rest, the text tells us. Don't do that. Don't be filled with unbelief and disobedience as that Exodus generation. Rather, strive to enter God's rest in Christ, a rest that remains today. We see that in chapter 4, verse 11. Enter that rest today by faith, rest in Christ, as, even as you look forward to that consummate rest, that, that fullness of God's rest at the consummation when Christ returns. The author says, persevere. And one of the tools that God uses to persevere us, as we considered last week, is His Word, the Scriptures. As we look at verses 12 through 13 of chapter 4, there the, the Lord, or there the author describes God, God's words almost like a surgeon's scalpel that just cuts us right to the very core of our being and exposes everything. Everything is brought to light before God. And that's what the Word does. And for many of us, we'd go, oh man, I don't want the Word to do that to me. That'd, that'd be too hard to bear. And, and yes, it would, yet for our great high priest who is in heaven, just remember that. But it is a good thing for God to do his heart surgery on us with his word, exposing sin that we might repent of it, that every vestige of disobedience would be brought out into the light, that we might be forgiven of it, that we might persevere. It is a good thing for God to take that scalpel of his word and cut us right to the core and open us up graphic, isn't it? But that's what he does. For repentance, for our perseverance, that we would hold fast in Christ and continue to hold fast. So in our text today, we find the author giving believers a powerful incentive to persevere. I mean, what, what do we do with all that mess that is exposed in us by, by the word? What, what do we do with it? The author says, confidently flee to your great high priest who is transcended and exalted, who is also able to sympathize with us, and then thirdly, who is accessible 24-7, 365. Well, first, the believer is incentivized By the greatness of Jesus as our great high priest, he is transcendent and exalted. So where do we see this? Look at verse 14. The author declares, we have a great high priest, and that great high priest is Jesus. And Jesus is great because he has passed through the heavens. In other words, he is exalted. He is enthroned at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus is great also because he is the Son of God. In other words, the author establishes the very one who is transcendent and exalted is also the very one who is the Son of God, and he is the one who is our exalted priest. The transcendent Son of God, the exaltation, Jesus' resurrection from the tomb and ascension back into heaven is linked with his role as our great high priest in heaven. And the author's already told us this. At the very beginning of the letter, in, in the introduction,
introductory verses, he links Jesus the Son of God and Jesus the great high priest. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the author summarizes Jesus' deity, his transcendence as the Son of God, greater than angels, God's final word, greater than the Old Testament scriptures. He refers to his redeeming work and making purifications for sins, and he refers to his ascension and that he is the exalted high priest enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. All of this he's already said in the first four verses of the letter of Hebrews. And now in verse 14 of chapter 4, he comes back to this linkage between the transcendence and exaltation of Jesus and his service as our great high priest in heaven. You've got to see that link. Consider the author's point in this way. As we go to the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 5 through verse 11, declares Jesus is the, is the transcendent Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, who was fully God, yet set aside his divine right for a time in order to humble himself, to take the form of a servant, to be made in the likeness of you and me, and to come down and humble himself even to death on a cross. And so we see the redeeming work of Jesus. He's the great high priest who offered a sacrifice for the purification of sins of the people of God, and he offered himself. He's the priest, and he's the sacrifice. And he's the sacrifice, as we will read and study later in chapter 9 and verse 12, those precious words, once for all. Paul says further that God highly exalted him. He rose from the grave and was exalted to his rightful place, enthroned at the right hand of the Father. And every knee will bow one day. And you might stop and ask, is your knee, is my knee bowing to him today? We have the privilege to bow today. And he is there exalted and enthroned at the right hand of the Father, continuing to serve as our great high priest in heaven. The author sets forth Jesus, the great high priest, who fulfilled once for all, chapter 9, verse 12, what was depicted in that annual work of the great high priest on the day of atonement that Jason read from Leviticus chapter 16. After atoning for his own sin... Aaron would then make atonement for the sin of the people. It's the application of blood. He would go in to the holy place and pass behind the veil into the most holy place and apply blood to the mercy seat. The text says he did that to make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness and the sin of the people. He made atonement for them. And then he went out and symbolically placed all the sin of the people on that scapegoat that Jason read about in Leviticus. And the scapegoat was sent out into the wilderness showing the, the sin barrier between God and his people being 
taken away, and therefore atonement was made once for all. And all that, w- that we read about in Leviticus chapter 16 is a type pointing forward, pointing ahead to what Jesus would do in fulfilling what was promised in that day of atonement that Jesus would do by humbling himself in obedience to the cross and victoriously arising from the grave and ascending into heaven, making atonement for sin, Hebrews 9 verse 12, once for all. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26, where it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated for sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Ephesians 9, Ephesians verse 4, 9, 1 through, 9 through 10. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Verse 14 tells us our great high priest accomplished his mission on the cross and rose from the dead and is continuing to serve as our great high priest in heaven. A powerful incentive for holding fast to our profession of faith in Jesus, our great high priest is gloriously linked to being the transcendent son of God and the exalted great high priest. They're one and the same powerful incentive to persevere. Then secondly, the believer is incentivized by Jesus' ability to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. It is my privilege and it has been my privilege over the years to come alongside people who are struggling as a counselor, And one thing I've learned is that my capacity to sympathize with another's struggle is limited. I can help by applying scripture, and I do. I can help by giving guidance, and I seek to do that. I can offer a shoulder to cry on. I I can sympathize with another's weakness, but it's limited. Why? Because I need sympathy myself. I do not have an unlimited ability to sympathize with another's weaknesses because I am weak. But there is one who is unequaled in being sympathetic and who is not weak. In fact, the scripture tells us sinless. He needs no sympathy. The greatest help that I can give someone as a limited sympathizer is to direct them to the one who is unequaled in sympathy for his weak and struggling people. We've already read this in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. Let me, let me remind us, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus has experienced 
more temptation, more struggle, more difficulty. He is able to sympathize with us even more than we can sympathize with one another. Yet without sin, he is perfect. Take, for example, the temptation of Satan in the wilderness. He suffered more than any other those 40 days, and yet he was triumphant. Because he has so completely identified with our weakness, he has, as F.F. Bruce said, an unequal capacity for sympathy. We are limited, but praise be to God, he is not. And that is a powerful incentive for our holding fast to our confession, our profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as our great high priest because he has an unequal, an unequal capacity for sympathy as he continues to serve as our high priest in the heavenly courtroom today, always interceding for us with sympathy. And then third and lastly, the believer is incentivized by Jesus' accessibility. Look at Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. To the Jewish believers who were the original hearers and recipients of this letter, the exhortation to draw near the throne of grace probably was confusing to them. What do you mean? Draw near to the throne of grace. There's that veil. In Exodus 35 through 40, God has gave the instructions for the, the building of the tabernacle, the, the tent of meeting, and the courtyard surrounding it. So when the high priest in the day of atonement, we'll use Aaron as an example, the first high priest would enter the courtyard, he would enter the courtyard through a, through a veil, through a wide gated entrance covered with, with a curtain, a screen. And the first structure that he would come to is the bronze altar where sacrifices and burnt offerings were made. And then he would come to the, the bronze basin where ceremonial washing took place. And then he would eventually come to the tabernacle itself. And there was another veil that was the entrance to the tabernacle. Having entered that, having entered into, through the veil, the holy place, the outer room, he would see a golden lampstand on the left. He would see the table of the bread of presence on the right. And then before him, in the back of that room, before yet another veil, there was an altar of incense. And there was yet this second veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place and behind the veil, behind that veil separating the most holy place was the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant and atop the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. The tabernacle represented God's presence in the midst of his people when the glory cloud would settle upon the tabernacle, God, through a theophany, was understood as being enthroned on the mercy seat, his throne. As we think about this design that God gave, and as we consider the passage that Jason read from Leviticus chapter 16 that we referred to in the first point, 
looking at the role of the high priest in making atonement, we want to consider that not even Aaron could go behind the veil separating the most holy place from the holy place but once a year. The text tells us in Leviticus 16 and verse 2 that Aaron was not to come at any time into the most holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. There was a barrier even for Aaron, the high priest. What is the connection between this mercy seat in the tabernacle behind the veil and the throne of grace that we read in this letter uh, to the Ephesians, or to the Ephesians, uh, to the Hebrews in verse 16? What is that connection? The mercy seat was a type that pointed to the reality, the antitype. And the reality to which the mercy seat in the tabernacle pointed to is the very throne of grace that the author of Hebrews writes about in verse 16 of chapter 4. It is the mercy seat on which our high priest is enthroned, that is in heaven. You may recall from Mark chapter 15 and verse 38 that when Jesus died on the cross, that the veil that separated the most holy place from the holy place, the veil that hid, that was a barrier for someone going into and before the mercy seat was torn in two, top from the bottom. Jesus' death on the cross made approaching the mercy seat, the throne of grace, accessible to all who believe. F.F. Bruce said it best, and I quote, It was at the earthly mercy seat that the work of atonement was completed in token on the day of atonement, and the grace of God extended to his people. The presence of the Christian's high priest on the heavenly throne of grace bespeaks a work of atonement completed, not in token, but in fact, and constant availability for divine aid in all their need. Thanks to him, the throne of God is a mercy seat to which they have free access and from which they may receive all the grace and power required for timely help in the hour of trial and crisis. As the original hearers were facing a desperate trial, indeed a crisis of faith, deciding to hold fast to Christ or turn and abandon Christ for the safe harbor of being under Judaism once again, the writer of Hebrews incentivizes them by declaring the greatness of Jesus, that he is the transcendently exalted great high priest, and that he is the high priest who has an unequaled capacity for sympathy for you, 
in your trial and hour of crisis. And he is a great high priest who is fully accessible to you anytime to dispense grace and powerfully help to meet you in your need. What an incentive we have to persevere. And that same incentive is ours today. And so the question becomes then, how are we to assess this mercy? Our great high priest, and this really is the point of of verse 16, is to remind us that our great high priest is accessible, that he is on duty 24-7, 365 days a year. And the way we, we access the throne of grace is through the means of prayer. The means of prayer at any time, in all time, in the darkest trial and crisis, even a crisis of faith, in the place of greatest need, we are called to cry out to him who is sovereign over all, transcendent and exalted, who has an unequal capacity for sympathy. He feels and understands what we're going through. The difference is he has all that we need to address it. And therefore, he is fully accessible, ready to show mercy, ready to impart grace, ready to powerfully come alongside of us to meet our need. The greatness of our great high priest is the reason that we are to come confidently before him, even boldly before the throne of grace in prayer. We're called to do that, and we should do that in recognition of his greatness. You know, I love a bargain, and I got a bargain Friday. But there is no bargain greater as an incentive to persevere than the one given in our text today. Let us, with all our sin, within all of our weakness, wounded and bruised, in all of our struggle, with all of our failure, let us, weak and wounded as we are, sinful and vile as we are, especially after God's surgery with the scalpel of his word, let us, and at the moment of our greatest despair over our sin, think about that. When everyone else would say, run and hide, <laughs> dig a hole and jump in it and cover yourself up, you have no hope. At the place of our most desperate need, our greatest struggle, being the most convicted that we can ever be because of the grossness of our sin, it is at that moment 
that the writer says, confidently, with all your sin and muck dripping off of you, confidently storm the throne of grace in prayer and boldly ask of your great high priest for mercy and for help in your time of need. May we ever storm the throne of grace where our merciful great high priest will not kill us, will not refuse to see us or hear us, will not even discipline us, but will show us mercy and will powerfully work in our lives that we would persevere. The powerful incentive for perseverance is the greatness of our high priest. Let us pray. Father, as we come now to your table, as we've heard your word declared, we pray for your work, your grace, your mercy. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would show us that even as we come to this table, it is an expression of what we've talked about today, your accessibility, your ability to sympathize with your people, that we're so in need of your grace. This also reminds us that you are the transcendent and exalted great high priest who has victoriously worked for our redemption and you offer that to us and you love to show us mercy remind us of these things and prepare us now as we come to partake of your table in Jesus name amen